in starting this, this new series, Alter Your Life, I, I think there's, there's a question that comes to mind, and uh, we're, we're really looking at uh, the idea that's presented in Romans 12, where it says that we're to offer our lives as living sacrifices. And the preceding verse uh, also says that, uh, or the verse after it actually says, we're not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And so, again, this idea of alter, A-L-T-A-R, your life, offer it as a sacrifice, and A-L-T-E-R, change your life. And so there are these two ideas, but it's preceded by 11 chapters of grace that explains that once we've encountered grace, this is what happens to us. This is our response. And I know that uh, when we, we talk about altar, there's, there's maybe uh, this question of, well, I don't even understand what is an altar. I mean, that sounds like something that belongs to ancient people. It's part of antiquity. I mean, nobody really does that anymore, right? Uh, offering sacrifices on some stones or a little religious furniture of some sort. Um, but... Uh, in fact, there is a story in the Bible that talks about this idea of two, two kinds of altars and a group of people that really got into an argument about which kind of altar they were actually building. I want to get to that in a moment, but I want to tell you a story first, and the story has to do with a bench. And uh, my friend, uh, I have a friend uh, in North Carolina who's also a pastor of a, a young church. Uh, he's been with uh, for about uh, 10 years and uh, he's the one who, who began it and started it. And, and there's been some ups and downs, but uh, last few years have been really rough and very difficult for him and his family and the church. And uh, so he went uh, to a retreat center called the Hermitage that's down on the Gulf Coast. And uh, people from all over the country go there, um, mainly pastors and pastors' wives. Uh, they have uh, professionally trained counselors that are there to meet with them and talk with them. And usually it's a time of just uh, retreat, uh, rest, and counsel. And uh, my friend went there for that. It's a beautiful location. And he was meeting with the counselor and sharing some of his story. And the counselor said, well, I, I want to take you out today to a special place. Um, and it's a place where many people have before have gone. And it's, a, uh, it's really uh, sort of a, a sacred place. And uh, I want you to go there, and I want you to go and have it out with God. And my friend was like, well, what do you mean? Uh, he says, well, I, I think, you know, you've expressed where there's some anger, bitterness, or expe- expectations not met. And, and I think some of those things are probably directed towards God or need to be directed towards God. And uh, so you just need to have it out with him. And I want you to know that, that there have been hundreds of people who have also done this here in this spot uh, and so he took him out to this spot where uh, there's no other human, human-made objects around. Uh, the only thing that's there overlooking the, the coastal waters is this beat-up, wooden, weathered bench. And he says, I want you to go out to this bench where other people have gone and, and have it out with God. Don't worry, no one else is around. No one will hear you. It's you and God. And uh, so my friend went out there and, and spent the afternoon there. And I, I think there were some moments where, uh, with him, uh, like with others, there were some moments where it was just like this. Just, you know, kind of twiddle your thumbs. I, I think that uh, from what he described, there were some moments of kind of pacing and talking to God. I think there may have been some moments of 
like this, uh, maybe some moments like this. I, I think there were some moments of maybe it was like this or, or banging. I, you know, I don't know if he left some marks, but he told me there were some marks left from other people that were there. I, I think there may have been some moments where he was, he was kneeling and uh, some prayers really went up before God. But he didn't tell everything, describe all that moment to me. But what I do know is that when he got back, his wife had to get used to a new man. That he went back to his church, and his church was strangely aware that their pastor wasn't responding the same way that he used to respond to things. He was different. And when I was talking with my friend, he was just telling a story and describing what was going on and was, what had happened afterwards since he returned back home. I recognized that he was different. He was changed. That he had met with God on that bench out by the ocean. And that bench was an altar. And it will be a marker, a monument of remembrance for the rest of his life. Now, with the question of what is an altar, there there are two things that uh, a person, a Hebrew person or a uh, Christian person might of earlier times understand what an altar would be. It would be one of two things. One, it would be a a place where there is sacrifice for sins. Uh, Usually that sacrifice was uh, uh, animal sacrifice, there was blood involved. <clears throat> so that place may be in someone's image. There would be certain smells that be associated with that. That may not be pleasant smells. <clears throat> there may be sights that they would remember. And, and you know, uh, an innocent animal was taken and killed. And so there is some sort of heartfelt or emotion-felt thing there that says that animal shouldn't have died but it did die because of my sin. So that would be one thought with altar. Another thought with altar would be this idea of a marker or a monument for remembrance. And usually it was done in a place and a time when someone had met with God, like this bench. So there is a story in the Bible that tells about a, a group of people that got into an argument argument about what kind of altar was built and it was an argument about whether it was an altar of sacrifice or an altar of remembrance and the story is the story of Joshua and to get into this story just to let you know that uh, if you remember Moses was the leader that God had appointed to lead the Israelites out of Egypt out of slavery into the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants And so Moses does this. When he gets to the edge of the promised land, uh, Moses dies. And then his leadership is passed on to Joshua, who has been his aide, his companion, and general. Now, Joshua uh, has to approach the land and look at it geographically. And God has given instructions of what part of the land is given to what groups of the Israelites. They're divided into 12 groups or 12 tribes. These are represented by the 12 sons uh, and they have their names, and the names of the tribes are named after those first 12 sons. Uh, so there's, you know, Judah or Simeon and uh, Reuben. 
uh, and you go on down the list. Now, there's a river that divides the land that was promised to them. And on, so we'll just say the river goes right down the middle of the room. And right over here is the western side. And there's ten tribes that are given this western side. And it is fertile. It is beautiful. It, it can become green. There is some desert parts, but it's not that bad. And there's mountains and there's forest. And the ocean is on the other side of it. And it brings this beautiful uh, weather that keeps it this Mediterranean climate. That's so wonderful that everyone would want to live in. Now, across on the other side of the Jordan, it's given only to two tribes because the land is a little more arid. It's a little more desert. And so you have to spread out a little more to feed your uh, herds and uh, take care of them. And so there's only two tribes on this side, Reuben and Gad. Now, Joshua approaches the promised land with all 12 tribes, and they're going in and they're going to take it. This is land that was promised to them. And they go in as an army, and they take the first this uh, eastern side for Reuben and Gad. And uh, Reuben and Gad are saying, hey, this is great. This is our land. Settle down. But the rest of the tribes and Joshua say, nope, you got to go with us over to the western side and help us take the land on this side. So after we take it, you can go back. So they go, they fight for the land, and then uh, at the end of it, they say, okay, Reuben and Gad, you fulfilled your promise. Go back over to your land, settle, have a great time. Now, they parted. Reuben and Gad leave, but I don't think it was an easy parting. You see, uh, I think they'd grown accustomed to being with their brothers and fighting with their brothers. I, I think it was a band of brothers, and, and I do think that, uh, you know, there was times around the campfires with the men and women telling stories, eating a meal. There was a closeness that was forged, but there was also the closeness that they sensed with God, that they, there was there, the tabernacle was with them, you know, the portable church where God's presence was, was signaled by a pillar of fire and a, at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And whenever it moved, they packed up and moved the tabernacle with them. So there was that portable church and being used to having that close by. Where the, where, uh, and then there was the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence. And it went in with them to battle. And, and so I think there was a hesitation in leaving and going back across this river to the eastern side. And when they got to the river, they began thinking to themselves. And they said, you know what? I think, I think we need to do something or else we're going to be forgotten by our brothers. If not us, our children and our grandchildren would be forgotten. And they'll be think, think of us as foreigners. So let's build an altar right here on the western side of the river as a reminder to these people. And then we'll cross over. So, so they built the altar. Now, the other ten tribes on the western side hear about what Reuben and Gad did, and they get really upset. They go crazy. In fact, they're so upset, they say, let's, let's go to war. And they start rallying people, saying, hey, we're going to war. Who are we going against war? Well, we're going to go against our brothers. What are we going to fight our brothers for? Because they built an altar. They built an altar? Grab my spear. Get my shield. Get my sword. Let's go after them. And you're going, well, what in the world? Why, why were they so upset about this and going after them? Well, luckily, someone did calm them down. And they said, hey, you know what? Let's, let's first find out if all our information is correct before we fight. Before we go and do this, let's send a delegation, one leader from each of the ten tribes to go over and talk to them, along with the high priest. So they do that, and, and they go. But what, what was the big deal? Why were they so hot under the collar to get into a fight about this whole altar thing? Well, here it is. Uh, before God's rescue of the Israelites from slavery and taking them out of Egypt, where was sacrifice of sin done? 
Where was it done? It was done by each family. Each family. And the dad of each family was responsible for making sacrifices for sin. And so there probably was an altar on the hill in the backyard. And dad, when, when he knew that there was something he had done or there was stuff that the kids had done or wife or whatever, every once in a while it would go out, grab one, a perfect lamb, make a sacrifice for sin, and he led the family that way spiritually. And, and so that was the way it was done. But then God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt and he says, I'm going to make you different from all the other people. And so to be different, here's the way we're going to do things. We're, we're going to only have one altar. We're building this tabernacle, this portable church where my presence is going to be, be sensed and felt. But at this, this portable church, there's going to be a bronze altar made. And it's only there that you sacrifice for sins and for your thanksgiving and, 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 and new crops and all that. It's only going to be there. And then God commanded. Now, it's not going to be the dads making the sacrifices any longer. There's only going to be one priest who's going to be making the sacrifice and his associate priest helping him. So this is the way it's going to be from there on out. So this new way of doing things was a total altering of their life. I mean, dad couldn't go out in the backyard and make a sacrifice for sin any longer. And it meant that sometimes they would have to travel a distance to make sacrifices, even Thanksgiving sacrifices. And so travel in those days, it wasn't always easy. And uh, you were, you, you know, safety was in numbers. And so it became not so in, such an individual thing with just one family. But it was like, hey, I heard the ner- neighbors are heading to Jerusalem to the temple to make sacrifices. Um, I, I, let's, let's go with them. And so they would travel together and the distance for protection from raiders and bandits. And, you know, and then when they got there, it wasn't dad making the sacrifice for the family, for himself. It was the high priest interceding for them. And so there was a kind of a thing of, you're, you're going to do this, right? And you're going to take care of this? And, and this sacrifice is for me and my family, right? Right? Because this is important. And so that's how things were carried out. And it was different. Life was totally altered. But it wasn't just altered in their way of living, but it was also a sign of their belief. As they participated in sacrificing at the altar of the Lord, it was a sign of belief in the covenant that God had made with them as Israelites. You are my people, and I am your God. You will follow me. And so it was, it was a sign of their belief and trust in the covenant that God had made with them, that they were a special people called out by God. So here is what the Israelites, the ten tribes on this side of the river, thought that Reuben and Gad had done. They thought they were breaking faith with God. They thought they were turning away from him. In fact, here's what it says in Joshua. How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Are you turning away from the Lord? Don't rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. But this is where, here, where Reuben and Gad try to clear up the confusion and we learn about the other kind of altar found in the Bible. And they reply, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel know if this has been a rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, don't spare us today. Just wipe us out if that's the truth. If we've built an altar to turn away from the Lord or burnt offerings or whatever kind of offerings, no, we didn't do it for that. We did it for fear that someday your children and grandchildren would say to ours, what do you have to do with the tabernacle? 
What do you have to do with the Israelites and the God of Israel? The Jordan is a boundary between us, and you're, you're foreigners. You live over on that other side. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants, we thought, might cause our descendants to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let's get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offering or sacrifices, but rather to be a witness between us and you and the generations to come that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary. And so that's, that's what they explain. And the other 10 tribes were like, oh, what a relief. And everyone was happy. Everyone was fine. Nobody fought. They all went home and everything was good. And there was that pile of rocks right by the river that stayed there for generation after generation to remind them to say that Reuben and Gad are a part of Israel. They are not another nation, another country. They belong and are a part of our worship. So what is this other kind of altar? It's a monument. It's a marker of remembrance. It's a sign to say, don't forget what God has done. Now, this wasn't the first time an altar of remembrance like this was made. It happened earlier, before this time, with Abraham. Remember, Abraham is the first person that God made a covenant with. A covenant that that began by saying, I will give you many descendants And your descendants will take this land around the Jordan River, and it will be theirs. So when Abraham first heard that promise, he was around 75 years old. His wife was 65. Now, can you imagine a 75-year-old and a 65-year-old having a little baby? That puts funny pictures in your head, doesn't it? It's just kind of weird. And you don't want to think about that. But Abraham and Sarah were excited, and they were like, wow, this is, is this really true? And so Abraham builds an altar, builds an altar of remembrance out of rocks and says, I'm going to remember this moment when God promised me this, me and my descendants. This is going to change my life. This is going to change everything. And so time goes on, and Abraham doesn't have a son. And, and time goes on, he begins thinking, what's going on here? There's even some subset stories that go along with it of how Sarah and he contrived to come up with plan B because they didn't think God was going to come through with plan A and the trouble that led to. But Abraham comes back to this place where this altar is built almost 25 years later. You ever wonder what he might have been thinking when he came to that altar? It It just says that he came back to the altar. There's no story with it. But I imagine that he came back to that altar and he was thinking, God, I, I thought that maybe you forgot. I thought that, that maybe you weren't going to come through on this promise, but I, I see this pile of rocks, and I, and I know that you really did meet me here. You really did say that. I didn't imagine that, that it's true. And Lord, I remember. I remember that moment, and I remember that time, and I'm not going to forget, and I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to trust your promise. And God did give Abraham a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac also had children, Jacob and Esau, twins. And Isaac and Jacob also built altars of remembrance, these monuments, when God spoke to them and said, you remember that promise I made to Abraham, your father, your grandfather? It's good for you too. I'm carrying it on through you. And so they built altars to remember that moment. You know, Today, people still set up monuments. They still set up altars. Not just Christian people, not just Jewish people, 
not just religious people, but people set up altars everywhere, all over, even in this country. And you go, what? What do you mean? People setting up altars. There's no worship places and stuff like that. What? No. Sometimes they're big. Sometimes they're small. You know, we have one in the center of Asheville. It's, it's commemorating the accomplishments of Vance Zebulon. It's, it's an altar of remembrance. It's a monument. Uh, we have some smaller ones around Asheville. They, they might even be at your office or your place of work. Uh, if you go in and, and maybe it's your office or maybe it's your boss's office, but you look on the wall and they've probably got a, a degree that's hung on the wall. It's commemorating an accomplishment, not forgetting the hard work that took to get you to that office of position. You know, at Ground Zero in New York City, there's a really huge monument, a huge altar in one of the footprints of the towers that was destroyed by terrorists. And it's a a symbol of witness. It's a witness saying, we will not forget. You know, but right around here, there's some smaller monuments just like that. They're put up by families and friends who lost someone they loved tragically in an accident. And you'll see a little cross and flowers that are put up there where someone died. It's an altar of remembrance. You know, you might have an altar in your house and you didn't know it. It might be an arrangement of pictures. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's an arrangement of pictures from your, your wedding day. And it's, it's a little thing to say, we won't forget that special day, will we? We won't forget that promise. It's an altar of remembrance. You might have a little collection of seashells that are arranged and some photos of a special family vacation. What are you saying? You're saying, that was a special moment and you won't forget it. That's a little altar of remembrance. You know, I would even argue that some people uh, today, that's for some people, tattoos are altars of remembrance. It, you know, you ask somebody who has tattoos, they'll always usually have a story to go with each one. You know, well, I got this when this happened in my life, or this uh, was when I made this commitment. They're altars of remembrance, and they want them forever. They don't want to lose it, so they, they do a tattoo somewhere. You know, I think it's a good thing that we're an altar-building people. And obviously, it's good and important to remember certain things. For those of us who have really sharp memories, we've built altars in our minds. We remember a moment when maybe God did something special, maybe spoke to us, or, or maybe it was a moment of rescue in our life. And, and it's etched in our minds, and we tell that story over and over to our children and our friends. There's a moment I remember when uh, our, our oldest son, he would get these really high fevers as a baby, and we'd have to take him to the hospital. And there was one time where, uh, you know, we, we knew what was going on. He was having another one of these high fevers, going up to 105. And we just, it was, we knew it was a moment we had to make a decision. Do we go to the hospital now? And, and we just, and I just prayed in that moment, God, this keeps happening over and over. And we got, we're turning to you, and we're going to ask you to help this boy take away this fever. And I'm not saying I have a gift of healing or anything, but that moment, God answered my prayer. And I remember it. It's actually in my mind, and it's a story I tell to Isaac, my son. I tell it to our kids, to our family, and I'm telling it to you today. It's a marker. It's a monument in my head. God hears us when we pray. You know, I, I would also advocate that 
not only remembering vacations or wedding days are important, that we, but we need to remember what God has done in our lives. That it would be good to build some physical altars even that remind us of what God has done in our lives. You know, maybe it would be a photograph or a symbol you wear. It could be a tree that you plant or something you landscape in your yard or simply a place where you set a chair or a bench. You know, since we are a more transient people, we move around a lot, uh, you know, you may not stay in the same house or maybe you live in an apartment or a place you rent. It's good that we build altars that we can take with us, that we can pass on to our children and our descendants. Maybe it's a ring, a necklace, an object, a Bible that passes from one generation to the other and a story is told with it. You're, what you're doing is you're handing on a legacy. You know, the night that I heard my calling to start this church in 2004... It was simply because of a screen door banging. I I, I didn't latch it well, and there was a storm that night, and it was flapping and banging against the wall and the door. And so I I woke up, and I went to to latch the door, and then I couldn't go back to sleep. And so like any good pastor, I said, "How, how can I get myself to sleep? I said, well, I'll just read the Bible. I know it's bad of me, but, but, uh, but I started reading a passage I had read a hundred times over before in my life. But something different happened that night. God's Spirit gripped my heart. He gripped my mind. He even gripped my body where I, I wasn't in control of my tears. And, and I knew that He was speaking to me directly from the Word, from this Bible right here, this specific one I was reading that night. And I knew that God had something for me to do and that I had to do it no matter what. Now, a screen door is kind of a hard altar to carry around with you, uh, you know, and, and we moved from that house, and so I, you know, there's an agreement when you signed on your mortgage contract when you sell a house, you can't take things that you, you unscrew, so I had to leave the screen door there, I couldn't take it with me, but there was a symbol that I did develop that was a reminder of my call. And, and I've needed that symbol several times throughout the, the nine years here. There's been moments where I've wanted to quit, but I look at that symbol, the, the Irish clotta, uh, the symbol for Highland, and I go, I can't quit until God tells me to. I've been called to do this, whether it's hard or easy, good or bad, fun or not. And so we all have these types of monuments, these markers, these altars that we build. You know, uh, some of you know uh, Doris Howard over here in a little prayer area over here. And you know that uh, she not only prays for the people of our church, but she loves to recommend good books that point towards Christ. And uh, along with these books, Doris always has bookmarks that she prints up with them, right? And uh, these bookmarks... Uh, they'll have little verses on them or special little sayings. And uh, one of her bookmarks that she has been printing up for a long time, more than 10 years uh, before she ever moved here, has a story on it. And the story is actually about some men who lived in North Carolina during the Great Depression. And these men uh, were getting ready to have a special gathering where the gospel is going to be presented. So they decided during Depression days to take several days off work and to pray. Now, that's something else back in those days when money was really tight. But they did this. And as they prayed, they felt like the Lord was telling them to pray for God to do something special at that gathering where the gospel was going to be presented. And so they did. They, they asked, God, would you do something really special? This gathering. They said, would you do something that would 
affect our whole city. So they prayed that. And then God began to give them more faith. They said, God, would you do something at this gathering that would affect our whole state of North Carolina? And then, then they began to pray, Lord, do, do something at this special gathering that would have effect on our whole nation. And they got real excited and full of faith. And they said, Lord, do something that would affect the whole world at our little gathering. And so they had their gathering, and, and people came. And, and I think maybe in their minds and hearts, you know, things just kind of happened like maybe they thought they would. There, there were some people that responded to the gospel, received Christ, and then things kind of went on like normal. And I kind of wondered if those men were kind of like, did God hear our prayer? I mean, we were praying for something to shake the world, to shake our city, shake our state. But little did they know that one of the young people that came forward at that gathering was a teenager named Billy Graham who received Christ. And now you know the rest of the story. And was their prayer answered? Yes, it was. And so the reason Doris prints this story on a little bookmark is that she wants us to remember that God hears us when we pray, that God will answer our prayers. And so those little bookmarks are little altars of remembrance. Remember, our God hears us when he prays and that God wants to answer our prayers. So you may not have a specific story that's yours, like, like that story of the men from North Carolina, but you can adopt one. You can adopt the story of Nineveh and you can say, God, like, like what happened in Nineveh, a whole city turned to repent, let that happen in this city, in Asheville. You may not have a a specific story that's yours, but you can adopt the story of Nehemiah. Lord, I got something to build, something to do. Let it happen again. Do it again, God, in my day. And and you might uh, adopt the story of Thomas or, or Zacchaeus, and maybe you have a doubting friend, and you say, God, do it again. Open the eyes of my doubting friend, just like you did with Thomas. And that's the prayer. And why it's an altar of remembrance, that's important, because we're saying, God, do it again. Your promises are true. Your, the stories are true. They're real. And we want to see it in our day. We want to see it happen now. This is why altars are important. And that's why we need to build them. That's why we need to have them in our lives. Because they remind us that we're people of faith. We're to live by faith and not by sight. We need to reflect. We need to remember you know, there was a, a survey that was done not too long ago with uh, some older people, people that were in the sunset of life, only had a few years left, and they were asked, if you had to live life over again, what would you do differently? And they had, you know, a top five, and, but in the top three, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, I'll give you one of them that's not part of the story, but one of them is that they would take more risk if they had to do life over again. They would take more risk. And the other thing that was surprising to the researchers is that they said, was in the top three things, is that they would reflect more. They would remember more, reflect more. Because you know, what do you do when you're at the end of your life? You're not working anymore? You sit around and remember, don't you? And you have things that you think about, and you go, you know what? If I would have thought about this back then, I would have done things differently. If I would have been remembering back then, I would have made some different choices. Reflect more. Remember, this is another reason why altars of remembrance are important and why we need them. 
Now, that's why we build them. But did you know that God builds altars of remembrance? Did you know that he put one in the sky after the flood? It's called a rainbow. He says that he will remember every time he sees it. He'll remember his promise he made to all the animals of the earth and the people of the earth. He also didn't just put an altar of remembrance in the sky, an altar of sight. He also gave an altar of sound, a reminder to himself. He said that he put an altar in the sound of a trumpet blast, saying that for generations to come, whenever the priests of Israel blow the trumpets before a battle, he will remember them and rescue them. Then there are a few altars God builds, but they're not for himself. But they're built for you and me. He built an altar. It's called baptism. It's a sign and a symbol for those who receive the promise of eternal life in Jesus. It's, it's an altar where we're buried with Christ and we're raised to life with Christ. It's an altar of remembrance, a marker, a witness to all the world that you belong to Christ and he belongs to you. You know, God the Son also gave us an altar of remembrance. We call it communion today. He, he gave us, really, a, it's, it, it's an edible monument. It's, it's bread, and he said, this bread represents my body. This is juice, and this juice, this wine represents my blood. And he told us, do this in remembrance of me. And it's, it's an altar of remembrance that we come to. And we do it every Sunday here because we, don't, we need to be reminded that we are sinners who are saved by grace. You know, and this points to the final altar God built for us, but it's not an altar of remembrance. It's an altar of sacrifice. It's the cross. He built it, and it's changed our lives forever. You know, we don't make sacrifices for animal sins anymore, do we? Why is that? Because Jesus was the final and perfect sacrifice for sin. There is no more sacrifice for sins. He was the final one. We we don't have a priest intercede for us any longer, do we? Why is that? Because Jesus is our priest forever. Because he rose from the grave and he can forever intercede for us before God. We don't, we don't really have a temple or a place to say that this is the only place where Christians worship, do we? I mean, we can really worship anywhere, can't we? Why is that? Because God, with his new covenant of the cross, that final altar sacrifice, said that I can now dwell within you. You are my temple. You are the body of Christ. But as Christ followers, do we have altars of remembrance? Yes, we do. Especially ones that God has given us. And for the Christ follower, these altars of remembrance will commemorate and serve us all our lives. Now I know some of you might be thinking, well, you know, I could pass on a ring or a Bible to a son or a granddaughter. But what what happens? What if they lose it? You know? What if, what if it's not important to them and they sell it in a garage sale or take it to the pawn shop, you know? What happens then? You know, even, even a tattoo, you know, you, you take it to the grave with you. It dies, it rots with you. 
How, how do you do an altar remembrance that lasts beyond your life? You know, I was just at a memorial service this last week. Uh, Dave Moore's mother died last Sunday. Uh, Dave Moore plays our bass for us here at Highland. And uh, at the memorial for Donna, his mother, uh, there were people that had written special notes uh, saying kind things about Donna and her life. And someone wrote a note, and, and they said, I didn't know Donna, but I know her son, Dave. I've worked with him for a year and a half now, and I see a character and integrity and honesty that's praiseworthy, that's good, that's right. It makes me think that maybe there's something to these Christ followers. And so I would say that, Donna, you lived a life that's being passed on, a legacy that's being lived out in your sons and your daughter. That's a legacy, an altar of remembrance that can live beyond your lifetime. And that's the kind of thing I could say, do it again, God. Do that story over and over and over again with us right here. May we be people that live lives worthy of emulating. May we live lives that are contagious, that are passed on to our children and our grandchildren. Lord God, make it so. Make it happen. Well, the band's going to come. They're going to play. And we're going to celebrate one of those altars of remembrance that God himself gave to us, communion. And it is a point in place where, while during this song, anytime you can get up, there's going to be some words that we're going to say together that remind us what this is about. And if this is, if you believe that these words are true, then I invite you to join us in this altar of remembrance that Jesus himself gave us, saying, this is my body, this is my blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, Make us a people that can remember what you've done. Make us a people that pray and call out to you, do it again, God. Lord, help us be a people that trust you and know that your promises are true. And we live in that way. In Jesus' name.